This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A one, two, three, four. Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Hi there, folks. I'm Amy Wright. My guest on the podcast today is renowned singer-songwriter and longtime activist, Billy Bragg. Bragg is a quick-witted artist and productive generator of change. He's been a fearless recording artist and political campaigner for over 30 years. And as of this week, he's released 10 solo studio albums, the latest of which is titled The Million Things That Never Happened. Declared the first pandemic blues album of our times, the record features 12 soulful country rock gems that were produced and recorded at Echo Zoo Studio in Eastbourne, England. And if that's not enough, Brack also added best-selling author and musicologist to his resume with the success of his acclaimed 2017 book, Roots, Radicals, and Rockers, How Skiffle Changed the World. We dig into all of this and a lot more in the next hour. So listen in and enjoy. And obviously I'm Amy Wright and I'm with Diddy TV. I'm, I'm the host here for Insights. Uh, You're in Nashville, are you? Uh, we're in Memphis. Memphis. Oh, Memphis. There you yeah. go. Just up the road. Yeah. Have you ever been to Memphis or? A couple of times, yeah. Once on the first trip to the United States of America where we, uh, I was opening for Echo and the Bunnymen and uh, we had to drive one day between Chicago and New Orleans and uh, I was on the crew bus. The band, the Bunnymen flew. I was on the crew bus and we figured the guy would have to stop somewhere. He couldn't do the whole drive and we <laughs> thought it might be Memphis. And... We so we begged him to park at Graceland's. Did he do and it? He wouldn't do it. He said he wouldn't do it. He said he didn't want to go into Memphis. It'd be a waste of time. He's going to park at a truck stop. So we all put. There was about nine of us on the bus, and we put ten bucks in each and bribed him to park for three hours outside of Graceland's in the car park. And another time, another time we were on the same trip, and we realised we could go to Al Green's church and see Al Green. So we went to Al Green's church and saw Al Green, and he. Um, we couldn't stay the whole thing, but while he was changing between songs or something, we we dashed out and he was in the foyer and we shook him by the hand and his eau de cologne stayed with us for days. It was like <laughs> we could in the, it was in the bus, it was on us. It was like, like a benediction. So I have good memories of Memphis. Well, maybe it was inspiring. You never know. It was very inspiring. <laughs> well, Graceland, you know, of course... Uh, poor Elvis, he got stuck in 1970s green shag carpet style. So one would like yeah, to think he might have changed that over time. But the, the jungle room still 
fills me with dread. And the guy proudly said, Elvis chose everything here. And I said under my breath, yeah, in five minutes. <laughs> I think it was in five minutes. The, 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 the history says that he called up a furniture store down the road and said, can you open at midnight for me? And he went in and said, I want this, 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 and this, and psht, right over to Graceland. We've all done it, Amy. We've all yeah. done it. <laughs> We've all done it. It's no, it's no different to Amazon. How is that different to Amazon? It's midnight. Everything's there. You click, 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 and then boxes come, and you think, what am I going to do with this? This is very true. Well, and today we're gonna we're gonna talk to you about talk, talk about you, but we're also gonna talk about your new album, The Million Things That Never Happened. And so uh, it's new, your new album. It's coming out very soon. Uh, I got the privilege of listening to the whole thing and uh, reading the lyrics, which are always really important to me. It's a great album, and I look forward to sort of asking you a few questions about the songs, uh, and we'll get to that. Um, but first, let's go back to when you were born in 1957 in, in Essex, right? Yeah, but Essex that's kind of like in the suburbs of London. <clears throat> you know, by the time I, was, I came along, the town that I grew up in was a, it was a big car factory. It was a Ford's car factory. So it was quite a, a prosperous place in the, in the working class sense. You know, it, was, it reminded me of uh, places like Dearborn, you know, around, around Detroit. Um, and there was a lot of work. Everyone worked in the car factory. Everyone's dad worked at the car factory. You know, even some of my old, my old great aunties worked there, you know, on the tea trolley and stuff like that. It was a part of everybody's life. And that was the, that was the town I was, I was born in. Well, I was thinking about England and the size of England, and I was reading a little bit about skiffle music, which was around in the 1950s. And it, it, they, it said that at one point there were 30 to 50,000 skiffle bands. There were, but you have to understand that skiffle was a phenomenon of the schoolyard. You know, the, those bands were playing in school gyms at lunchtime. They were playing in church halls, often to very few people. There, partly because there was no, uh, there were no places for them to play. There was no club uh, circuit at that time. The, you know, Lonnie Donegan, the guy who more or less invented and popularized skiffle, when he went on tour, he went on a tour on a vaudeville. Uh, Bill with dancers, uh, you know, trick cyclists, um, animal acts, and he came and played at the end of that because that was the only circuit. That was how Lennon McCartney and Harrison saw him play in uh, in late 1957 in in Liverpool, the Liverpool Empire, as a as a vaudeville act. So those those musicians were all those skiffle bands were all almost 90 99% boys, and they were between the ages of 11 and 16. And why it's significant is because 10 years later, those same kids invaded the United States of America and, you know, turned around the, the, what pop meant for, certainly for the UK, almost every British band that had a number one uh, in that period between when the Beatles first came in 63 and when things went all a bit weird in 66, every single one of those bands had originally been a skiffle band knocking around in a school playground playing Lead Belly and Lonnie Donegan. Well, and John Lennon actually had a skiffle band before the Beatles um, called the Quarrymen, right? Indeed, that's how he met Paul McCartney. And it was hugely significant. Um, George Harrison was once asked if the, the Beatles were influenced by the blues because the Stones clearly were and a lot of British bands were. It didn't seem as if the Beatles were. And Harrison said, well, yeah, we've been influenced by Lead Belly. And, and the, 
the American interviewer said, in what way? He said, well, no Lead Belly, no Lonnie Donegan. No Lonnie Donegan, no Beatles. And that's a really significant thing about Skiffle. It played a, a really, really important role in British pop culture because it brought the guitar to the front of the bandstand. The guitar previously had been a rhythmic instrument. Nobody, no British singers played a guitar at all. The people who played guitars were singing cowboys and uh, calypsonians. But the, the Donegan was the banjo player in a trad jazz band, a New Orleans jazz band. When they played their skiffle set, he came to the front, took control of the gig, and teenagers saw this and were really impressed because they thought, I could do this. This looks really, you know, most people can play the guitar. You know, I'm, I'm not much of a musician, but I can bang out some chords on the guitar. And most kids saw Donegan and thought, well, I could do this. And that was the significance of it. Well, it's kind of amazing how fast it went from acoustic guitar to electric. Yeah, well, that was partly, I mean, the other thing you've got to understand in, in 1950s Britain is that rationing of food um, and petrol and uh, sweets and also electrical imports only ended in 1954. In fact, it was the week in which Elvis recorded That's All Right Mama in Memphis, that same week. Rationing, which had begun in my country in 1940 during the Second World War, ended 14 years later in 1954. So someone like John Lennon, who was born in 1940, he was 15 years old before he could go into a candy shop and buy whatever he wanted. And what they wanted, those kids, was guitars. They wanted guitars. And it was very hard to get electric guitars. But once they came along, everybody, everybody could already play three chords on a guitar. So, you know... Chuck Berry, Muddy Waters, all the great, you know, R&B, blues, all those songs, your average British schoolboy could play those songs. So that's where the, the, the nursery for the British invasion of America in the 60s happens around the time I'm born. So you're born, and then at what point did you, did you start playing guitar? It took me until I was 16 years old. I spent a lot of time um, goofing around with a tennis racket. Uh, you which still play? I could never make make a, I wasn't very good at playing the tennis racket. I'll be honest with you. I think probably I needed a, a musical tennis racket, and I'd actually <laughs> had a tennis racket for playing tennis. I should have got a musical one. But um, the kid next door taught me. He was two years younger than me, and he was a huge fan of Rod Stewart and the Faces. And I, he got an electric guitar, and I heard him playing his way through the Rod Stewart songbook. So I leaned over the fence, had a word with him, and he, I got a, I got a, uh, a Spanish acoustic guitar for my 16, uh, summer when I was 16, when I left school and Wiggy next door taught me how to play the Rod Stewart songbook and I was away. So you were writing poetry also, even at a young age. Yeah. And so did you realize the, the power of the written word even as a young person? I did very much so, yeah, particularly the singer-songwriter. I was initially drawn to uh, lyrics, listening to Simon and Garfunkel, particularly the boxer, when I was about 11 or 12. And um, by the time I was 13, 14, I'd progressed on to Bob Dylan and kind of Dylan led to the American singer-songwriters. And if you listen to that, I mean, I was listening to these in the early 70s, but the people that I was listening to had been making records, you know, seven or eight years before, were deeply involved in the civil rights movement. So I was picking up politics, not just from um, the singer-songwriters, but also from listening to... Uh, uh, African-American soul bands, Tamla Motown, Stax, um, these kind of things, uh, Sam Cooke, uh, you know, Marvin Gaye singing Abraham, Martin and John. I got a sense of what was going on in America, uh, the discrimination, the inequity, 
and uh, got that through music rather than through reading about politics. So were you influenced then by the turmoil of the 60s in terms of the formation of some of your uh, opinions or political ideas? Very broadly, yeah. Obviously, clearly, being a fan of uh, American soul music, I, I, you know, I was aware of racism. But it really uh, it took a couple more things to get me fully aware of the way the world is. The first thing was um, punk rock, which happened when I was 19 in 1977. And that brought me to my first political activism, which was Rock Against Racism. Went to see The Clash playing there in 1978. And then subsequently, when I was playing solo in 1984, about a year after my first album came out, Life's Right with Spy vs. Spy, there was a titanic struggle between the National Union of Mine Workers and the Thatcher government in the UK, which allowed me to kind of plug into that Woody Guthrie tradition of political... Uh, Labour songs, which I hadn't really checked for before, but I was going and playing in the coal fields in the north of England, and there will be these old guys there singing a cappella folk songs from the 19th century that were more radical than my songs, which were knockoffs of songs from The Clash from 1977. So I kind of plugged into that aspect. So when you when you first heard The Clash and you, you kind of um, saw what music could be from an activist standpoint, um, what was it that struck you about what what they were doing versus, say, other bands and the messaging? I mean, I know that you're you're a big proponent of accountability, for example. Mm. Well, I didn't see it in those times back in the day. What I liked about The Clash was, and what I still, you know, the, to me, what is the absolute definition of what punk rock is, is it is a, a, a do-it-yourself aesthetic. You don't wait for someone to give you permission to do something. You do it. You, you, are, you are your own justification. And I think that's true in whatever uh, creative endeavor you want to undertake, you know, from doing, you know, painting, making a TV program on your phone, whatever. You know, I think that that idea is such a revolutionary idea. And it, and it stays with me. You know, when I wanted to write a book about Skiffle, I just started writing a book about Skiffle and then I found someone to publish it for me. I didn't go to a publisher and say, listen, I'd like to write a book about Skiffle. I relied on my enthusiasm and my vision and, uh, and did it. And it, I mean, it could, you know, I could have ended up self-publishing it, which I probably would have done had I not found a publisher. But um, that idea stays with me still. What do you think uh, music, music does for, say, marginalized groups? in society? Well, it's always been the way marginalized groups were able to talk to each other. Now in the 20th century, all youth were marginalized. There was no platform for young people to discuss their ideas. When I was 19 in, during punk rock, if I wanted the world to know how I felt about anything, you know, love, politics, the weather, the only medium available to me would be to learn to play guitar, write songs and do gigs. That was the only platform as a working class lad from East London that was available to me. Obviously now, um, that's much, much broader now because of social media. Many more people can uh, express their views. And I think that's a positive thing because, you know, there's a high bar for people to get up on stage, particularly for women. You know, the music industry, to some extent, is still a racist, sexist industry where the values of uh, uh, um, exploitation uh, are still very, very much weighing down creative people, people of colour, uh, women, <clears throat> and so subsequently now that more people are able to contribute to the, the discussion because of social media, I think that's a very positive thing. But at the same time, music has a great 
ability to bring people together, to focus people, to focus their emotions on a particular issue. And sometimes in times of social strife, to focus their solidarity. You know, that's the sort of thing that Woody Guthrie was doing, that Pete Seeger was doing. To some extent, the singer-songwriters during the civil rights movement were doing. And music still has that power. And um, I think that's um, that emotional power is why people think music can actually change the world. Unfortunately, my experience is it can't. It has no agency, but it does have the ability to inspire people's activism. And really, if you're going to be honest with people, it is only the audience who have the ability to change the world, not the artist. The artist has the, artist has the ability to reflect the world, to offer a different perspective of the world, to join the dots in a way that isn't uh, seen by the mainstream media, perhaps. But ultimately, if you really want to see change, then it's only the mass of the audience that can affect that change. Well, and music has a little bit of the same effect that the internet does in the sense that it brings to the forefront um, an opinion that then a wide variety of people can say, oh, there's someone or other people out there that feel the same way. That's very true. I think I've come to the conclusion over the last few years that, that the currency of music is empathy. It's that sense that you are not alone, that you get from listening to a song, that you hear that voice, uh, the person, this is not a political thing. Uh, it's a, you know, it's a, a as much in a, a love song as in perhaps more in a love song, because people find themselves more often in a in an emotional quandary than they do in a political quandary. Thank heavens. Um, <laughs> but you know, you hear someone singing about their their situation, you think, you know, I'm not the only person who's, who feels this way. It helps take the weight off, you know. Or in a slightly different way, you know, as a songwriter, you're asking uh, the listener to consider a, a a situation that may be something that they've not personally experienced but it gives them a different insight into people who have experienced that and therefore it may help to change their perspective on things. So that's really, really crucial. And I think music uh, is not so, should we say, um, belligerent as social media can be. You know, it can be angry. It can be uh, hugely powerful, emotionally powerful, politically powerful, but it doesn't have that snarky uh, personal thing. You know, you're not, you're not when you listen to a, a song, they're not going to make a personal comment about the way you look or what it says in your profile and the way social media is, you know? Social media can be nasty. Very be nasty. Spiteful, <laughs> and people can gang up on you. But with music, generally, it's the, you know, the artist is passive with the listener. And I think that's not a bad thing because it allows the listener to, to make their own conclusions and to be able to bring their own emotional situation to what you're singing about rather than you're dictating it to them, you know, you're suggesting it to them, can they, can they connect with it? Whereas with social media, as we all know, uh, you know, perception always trumps intention. Whatever you've said may make sense to you, but somebody else may see it in a completely different way, get the wrong end of the stick and proceed to beat you with that stick. So I think there's a slight difference between <laughs> music and social media for putting people about. I would argue that the music is more focused on that idea of empathy, of compassion, uh, of, uh, you know, collective action than social media can be. Social media can do that as well, but generally it's, that's not the sort of central theme. Well, I would like to think that people have thought about what they're writing musically in the lyrics before they put it out there, whereas on social media, people just write something and two seconds later it's out there. 
for everyone to see. So there's not a lot of thought process no, that goes into that. There's not a lot of nuance <laughs> in social media. So if you try and put nuance in, people people don't want to they don't want to be blindsided by facts. Oh dear. Oh, look out, it's nuanced, look out. Well, would you say that a musician, say that you achieve a certain amount of notoriety fame, um, is there an obligation to get messaging out there or do you feel that's just up to the individual? I think it's up to the individual to maybe um, double back to a question you asked earlier that I didn't really properly answer. As I was saying that um, all youth were marginalized in the in the the 20th century, that's no longer true. But there are still some people who are marginalized. Women are still marginalized and uh, often people of color. So you find from their, those communities, you do find radical songs because that's, you know, if you're trying to get a message out beyond your community, putting a great hook on it or a, a powerful beat will draw in people from outside to hear your perspective. You know, for instance, in the, in the UK, we have a guy named Stormzy. Uh, who's uh, come from a, a grime background. He's now mainstream and he's still using his music to not only talk to his peers, but also talk to the majority white audience. When he takes the stage, you know, he, he often will bring in, he's not, he's not overly political, but he will take opportunities, particularly when he's on live TV, to put into his rhymes some, uh, you know, conscious topical stuff because he has an opportunity now as a black man to say these things to the mainstream audience that he doesn't normally get that from his own community. So in those areas that are still marginalized, music is, I would argue music is still a political force because it's the only medium that some have. Whereas in broadly speaking, young people now have access to uh, plenty of media to get their views across. Yeah, I would think as a musician in one of these marginalized groups, like you're describing that if you have a platform, you probably feel a little bit of pressure to use it, uh, even if you're normally maybe not so political, but um, just the opportunity to influence uh, society yeah. in a certain way, there must be some pressure there, I would think. I think so too, yeah, but you can't judge people by that. In mm -hmm. the end, you know, people are trying to make sense of the world mm -hmm. and people uh, who suddenly find themselves with a platform can sometimes be overwhelmed by that. Uh, a possibility um you know i'm i'm i was politicized by margaret thatcher by the minor strike had that not happened maybe my politics would have remained more humanitarian wouldn't have been so ideological mm -hmm. um you can't make pol political music in a in a ideological vacuum uh but uh unfortunately at the moment we don't live in an ideological vacuum <laughs> and we haven't done really since brexit went down and uh and then uh yeah, trump was elected so it's up to everybody to try and work out how they want to express their views. And I don't, want, I don't wish to judge anybody on whether or not their music is political. That's not, you know, that's not the way it is. I happen to write those kind of songs, but I also write lots of love songs as well. So, you know, I'm, I'm open to the way people want to express themselves. I think that's, it's down to them really to decide whether they want to take part in that debate. And the new album actually does have a combination of the two when I was listening and to the songs and, and reading the lyrics. It's a combination of some, like you said, compassionate, empathetic, maybe love songs, and, um, and then also some, some political songs, both, both there, but um, on the same album. Um, so you were, you were on a label at some point in your, your career, and did you ever feel pressure uh, from the label to write music in a certain way? 
No, I'm very fortunate in that, that I've always worked with people who've been broadly sympathetic to what I'm doing. The pressure I came under was more to uh, put out singles. When, very early on, I didn't like the idea of singles. I was a bit of a purist. It took me to my third album till I put out a single, and that really annoyed the record company. And eventually it annoyed my manager as well. So uh, I did finally put out a single, Levi Stubbs Tears, because I thought it sounded like a great single. But it, I took my time on that. I've always been quite an independent artist in that sense. And I've tended to try and work with people who are sympathetic to what I do. For instance, um, my UK record, actually it's a worldwide record deal now, um, has reversions in it. So after seven years, my catalogue reverts to me. And then I get right to, on. you know sign a new deal for that and it's a, a mark of uh the, the the trust that i have in my record label cooking vinyl that i've been re-signing to them since the early 1990s you know they've done me proud they've given me a lot of support they've given me a lot of leeway and the benefits that we've both enjoyed um have been uh helped by the fact that every seven years we get to sit down and look at all the new technology and write a deal that fits with the new technology rather than, you know, just staying with a, an analog deal that I signed in 1983. So it's a, I, I would advise all artists to have some sort of reversion, whether it's seven years, 10 years, 15 years, not least because you can still be making records when you're 63. And if you own your rights, you can be selling those records at your gigs and making a living. You know, I, I work with artists from the 1960s um, who had, you know, we would stop in the motorway service station and they would look on, on there'd be CD, compilation CDs from the 1960s with their tracks on which they made no money. Uh, and they had made solo albums <clears throat> for multinational corporations that they could, didn't have the right to press up themselves and sell at their gigs and make a living on. And I just thought that was really bad. You know, the multinational corporation didn't care if Ian McLagan pressed up 100 copies of his one of his 1980s solo albums and flogged it off to people at gigs and signed it. And, you know, they would, they probably didn't even know they had it on their roster. So it, it, I think it behoves all of us artists to try and hang on to those rights so that we can make sure that we can carry on making a living uh, as long as we have a career, you know, and I, as I've been, I've been very blessed in that sense. Um, and I'm still, I am still, you know, reissuing my old stuff and people are still interested to buy it. Well, it is interesting that you would think young people today would have learned from all the lessons of artists from the 50s, 60s, 70s, et cetera, that signed away all those rights, but um, it still goes on. And one of the things we talk about here at Diddy when we, we work with a lot of emerging artists is we stress that, that, um, that fact as well. Try to hang on to the rights as much as you can to your music because, uh, because it's important you know, as you age as an artist. So, you know, you make a lot more money in the long run. You know, right. I, I used to get in terrible arguments with uh, the guy in charge of Go Discs when I came up with a new album. He wanted to give me loads of money and sign for life of copyright, my, my albums. And I always refused to do that. And eventually, Good for you. he and my manager used to fall out. And eventually I used to have to go and see him in his office. And I used to say, listen, man, I made these records. I've paid for these records. You're going to get the money back from me. So I've paid for them. Whose pension should this be, yours or mine? And when I looked him in the eye, I always said, it should be yours, Bill. And it's just as well he did because he don't own that record company no more. Right. I'm th Univer Universal own it. They probably don't even know they've got the entire Go Disc catalogue. 
Right. And so someone would have been making money from that and neither of us had even met and took no part in the career that the two of us forged together to, to make those albums. Whereas I'm in the privileged position that I, I have those rights back. And I think it's tough when you're just about to break for the first time and you have the opportunity to sign a recording contract that's going to, you know, you're going to be able to go back to your hometown and say, look, I've got a record contract. It's really hard to think, well, hang on a minute, you know. Right. I'm it's sure hard. It is. So I understand. I understand when bands need to, to do that, artists need to do that. I understand that. But people should be giving them more advice. People should be not only giving them advice, but it should be industry standard that we give people reversions, you know, particularly in, in the, the modern digital world where, you know, the, the um, analog type of um, contracts we used to have no longer really apply. You know, I think it's outrageous that people still put those kind of contracts forward. So there was a quote I, I read that you said, I don't mind being labeled a political songwriter. The thing that troubles me is being dismissed as a political songwriter. And what do you mean by that? Well, people can say that they, you know, they, they don't listen to me because it's all about politics. I did a show at the Roundhouse in London a few years ago. And um, at the end, my, my roadie was winding up the wires and he got chatting with the security guy who stood in the pit, the whole of the gig. And the security guy said to him, you know what, I really enjoyed that. And the, my roadie said to him, well, how do you mean? He said, well, I thought Billy Bragg, you know, it'd be all politics, you know, it'd be all just ranting about the government and everything. But it was really quite entertaining, wasn't it? <laughs> and that's my problem. Mm. You know, I am a political songwriter and I don't mind admitting that, but it's really not because I write loads of political songs, it's because nobody else does. So the ones that I write stand out like, like nails, you know, out of a piece of wood. So I'm, you know, as I say, I'm cool with that. I'm not about to change, but... I, I do have a problem with people who just, you know, dismiss me and think they know everything about me or about my politics. You know, I'm always, when you're Billy Bragg, you have to do things that throw people off the scent. You know, a couple of years ago, I shook hands with the Queen. And, you know, people are appalled by that. But I'm like, you know, I've just written a book actually about, um, called The Progressive Patriot, about a sense of, you know, British identity. Why would you not want to look her in the eye and, you know, sort of, suss her out. She's been jangling around on the coins in my pocket all my life. Wouldn't you pass up? <laughs> you know, if FDR was still president, wouldn't you fancy going and meeting him and shaking his hand? Of course you would. Okay. So what I thought is it might be fun to talk about a couple of your projects along the way sure. um, that I thought were just very interesting projects. And I wanted to know a little bit more about them. Um, back in 1998, you got a call from Nora Guthrie about uh, who's Woody Guthrie's daughter about putting Woody's uh, lyrics, poetry to music. And uh, why did she contact you? Was it there a comparison in her mind between the songs you write and her father's songs or how did that come about? I think it was more she saw me perform live. I think there was something there. You know, Woody Guthrie, when he came to New York in 1940 and uh, um, did his first gig on a, on a he had a, a half hour spot on a, a bill and uh, he played three songs and the rest of the time he was chatting and talking and entertaining people with his stories. And I've always been a bit like that as well. And I think that might be what she saw, but also she had asked, already asked people that you might refer to as the usual suspects, the people you would imagine would want to do that. And I think she'd come to the conclusion that they were turning her down because in some way, Woody was too much of a giant to them. They were too close to him. He loomed too large in their legend. 
But for me, as a as a European, Woody, I see Woody against the backdrop of American roots culture. You know, he's he's a giant, sure, but he's a giant among other giants, Lead Belly and you know such people, Jelly Roll Morton and these guys. So I I was more interested in the the aspects of uh, collaboration with Woody, because what Nora had was um, three thousand plus song lyrics, complete lyrics, which. Um, Woody had written tunes for, but he kept the tunes in his head. Like myself, I don't write music. I don't write, you know, musical script. So the tune, if I write a song, you get a bit of paper with a load of words on that rhymes and scans usually. And Woody had left, as I say, over 3,000 of these. And the possibility to collaborate with Woody Guthrie was not something that I would pass up. It's such an amazing idea. And I also knew, um, that in order to do it, we really would need to make a record that put his lyrics front and centre. So rather than get a kind of variety of songwriters to, you know, sing the songs, I very much wanted to work with a single band. And at the time, that band, I thought, was most certainly Wilco. And partly because I knew that Jeff Tweedy would understand the possibility of doing this and working with Woody and mining that period of American roots music. Um, you know, I can't think of a single other artist who would have such a trove of material that had never been heard. And, and Nora was so uh, generous with her support and the material. And, you know, what she wanted us to do was to change people's perception of her father. And that's why we recorded songs like My Flying Saucer and Christ for President and Ingrid Bergman, where he talks about making love to the Swedish film star on the slopes of an Italian volcano. That Those kind of songs was what she wanted. So... We had a great fun recording in Chicago and in Dublin, where we made most of the album. And, uh, you know, which is evidenced by the fact that we were supposed to record 15 songs and we actually recorded 55 songs. That's amazing. Because we were so, yeah, we were, there's so much stuff there uh, that, we, you know, we barely scratched the surface. Well, one of my favourite songs is on, uh, on the album California Stars. Yeah. What a great song that is and so simple as well. You know, there's, it's one of those songs, it's just a, she strung the words together there. I think Wilco did a great uh, job in picking that out because it's not the sort of song I would have picked up on. It's, that's, you see, that's the good mixture about it. You know, it wasn't enough just to have some Brit come over and work it out. I really needed, it needed to be grounded in the American experience as well. You know, I picked out a song about Joe DiMaggio, about baseball. Joe DiMaggio's done it again. I really like that song. But when we came to record it, I wrote the tune for it as well. Normally in the studio, what happened was that whoever wrote the song, they sang it. So, you know, if, if uh, you know, Jeff and Jay wrote the song, they would, Jeff would sing it. If I wrote a song, I would sing it. But they got this baseball song and I suddenly realised that the Wilcos weren't going to let me sing it. They didn't want <laughs> some Brit. I think, I think I've been winding them up as well by saying that the Brits invented baseball. It may have been to do with that, but eventually they got, and they did a great job on it. I love it. I really love their version of it. But it was kind of, that's what was great about the collaboration. You know, we could, we had so much material. We could do these songs in so many different ways. Every day was an adventure. I can't believe that Woody Guthrie had that many songs that hadn't been recorded. I mean, or, and that's just pretty well, outstanding as know, well. He didn't have a career like I have a career or any of the people that you interview had a career, you know. He hardly ever played a proper gig. He never went on tour. Um, he 
didn't have a, yeah, a recording contract as such. And almost all of the songs that we worked, in fact, I can't think of any that weren't written in New York. So they were all written in post-1940. And then he carried on writing until he uh, succumbed to Huntington's disease. In fact, some of the lyrics, the handwriting, you could see deteriorating as he was writing the songs, which was, you know, emotionally powerful uh, lyrics that we saw in the archive. Um, there's some that he'd written when he was in hospital. But he just had this incredible, powerful outpouring of a communicator. He would have been an absolute demon on Twitter, I tell you. He would have been all day. <laughs> Can you imagine? Well, and there's another project you did with Joe Henry, Shine a Light, field recordings from the Great American Railroad. And I sort of saw a tie-in there, Woody Guthrie's Hobo Lullaby. He recorded that in an Amtrak station. Um, yeah, we did. We recorded that in an Amtrak station in uh, Texas. And um, we, you know, I've been working on a, a book about Skiffle and realized that the, almost all the Skiffle songs were American Railroad songs. And I became kind of entranced with the idea of the railroad in America and what it did for America, how it changed America. Probably I came to the conclusion that there was probably no technology that was more created a greater significant change of the human experience than the railroad. You know, what came after the car enhanced that and made it individualistic. The airplane just made it faster and higher. But what the train did, all of a sudden, the world over the horizon was available to you. You could get on a train and go there or you could order stuff and it would turn up a week or so later. That revolution um, wasn't so marked in the songwriting in my country as it was in your country because it kind of was still going on because the vastness of your country was still going on at the beginning of the recording uh, period and people were still singing about trains, particularly uh, rural people moving to the big cities, that great, the mass migrations of the early part of the 20th century was all about the train. So whether it was, you know, uh, white sharecroppers, African-American sharecroppers, whoever were going to the big cities, that was what they were talking about. That was where their hope was. And so collecting all these songs together, I thought it'd be great to try and reconnect some of these songs where they came from. And that's where the idea sprung up. And again, Joe Henry was a great collaborator because I knew if I spoke, as when I spoke to Jeff Tweedy, I knew if I told Joe about this, he'd, get, he'd be, wow, yeah, let's do it. Let's get on a train in Chicago and ride all the way to Los Angeles. And every time the train stops, we'll record a song because there are so, there are so few um, passenger trains on that route. True. Um, one a day, actually, down to uh, to San Antonio, and then one every other day to Los Angeles, that um, the trains stop in the big cities, they'll stop for 40 minutes to let the freight trains go by, because it's predominantly, a, you know, America moves more material by freight than any other Western country. Freight, uh, railway freight is absolutely crucial in America. So the passenger trains have to stop, they have stopovers in the big cities. And that's where we had the opportunity to find an acoustic space that was conducive to performing and bang out a song and pick up whatever was going on around us. You know, trains going through the station, announcements being made, people meeting one another, people saying goodbye to one another. It was just brilliant. Well, Diddy TV's studio is a half a block from the Memphis Amtrak train station. Wow. And it's the passenger line that goes between New Orleans and Chicago that stops in Memphis. And so yep. every day there's a train that goes one way and a train that yep. goes the other that's way. That's it. That's and, all that's left. Yeah. And and we we actually hear them. There's a little 
you know, they blow their horn when they come through the city. But in general, we're real big fans of trains here. And if you notice behind me on the mantle, we, there's an O-scale uh, Lionel train train uh, that's kind of going across the mantle. And we have an enormous train set here that, that we uh, have. So, but have you, ever, have you ever been on a train, Amy? I have, I have. Oh, cool. Um, well, you're yes. one of the few Americans. I know, has. I know. I was gonna, I was gonna say that uh, we took the train from here to New Orleans and back, wow. and it took longer by train than yep. by car. Of course, of because course. of exactly what you're saying, which yep. is every time there was a commercial train, we had to stop. But mm -hmm. I have to say, I would, I would recommend it to anyone because you went through a part of the, of Mississippi, or you know, if you were going north to Chicago, it'd be the same way that you really don't access if you're driving by car. And you get to see these beautiful you know, fields in, in the Delta, and then you stop and it's 45 minutes in some little town. And um, it was, I, I thought it was wonderful. I loved it. I really Well, this did. is a similar experience for the Americans who came with me. Obviously, Joe was into it, but the, the engineer who did the recording, uh, Ryan Friedlands, he was, he was initially a bit skeptical about it. Um, you know, it was going to take forever, and he was totally into it. He did a great job. But by the end of the, the, the time, he was, I'm going to do this with my son. I'm going to catch this. Is not, there's another route that goes from Los Angeles to Chicago through the Rockies. Um, and he was like, I'm going to take my son on this train. Because I think, you know, for me, um, I saw an America that I've never seen before. I've been coming to your country twice a year for the last 35 years. But I found myself exactly that, seeing things uh, in the landscape and also just pulling up and looking into people's back gardens. You're suddenly looking into the, you know, you see into their kitchen almost and you're sitting there for 30 minutes looking in there. It's just, I, I found it incredibly in, in, interesting and informative. I was just in Santa Fe, New Mexico and found out as we were leaving, of course, that there is a train, still an old train there that you can take through the mountains. It's just a small, wow, small yeah. train. And the next time I go back, I'm definitely going to, uh, you know, take a ride on the train. It's only about four hours, but um, I bet it beautiful. would be beautiful through the mountains there. Mm, yeah. Well, let's talk about your new album. It's the 10th album. Is that correct? Apparently so. Yeah. I think <laughs> if you don't count, if you don't count Mermaid Avenue okay. and the compilation albums, I think it might be the 10th album. But, uh, you know, it's kind of like uh, it's one more than Beethoven. That's the way I look at it. That is that is true. And uh, and how old was Beethoven? How old, how long did it take him to write ten ten albums? <laughs> I can't remember. He was old and gray like me, though, wasn't he? When he finally right. <laughs> he finally gave up. The million things that never happened. Where was it recorded, and who engineered it? Oh, well, it was recorded in Eastbourne, which is on the south coast of England, a, a studio called Echo Zoo, by uh, Romeo Stoddart, who's the the guitar player and the songwriter from the Magic Numbers. And uh, Dave Azumi, who's the producer at uh, uh, Echo Zoo. And I wanted to work with them specifically because I wanted to work with arrangers. I've never really worked with people who really arrange my songs. And after all this time, I have a, a, a fear that I will subconsciously repeat myself on my records. So I wanted someone who was going to take the ideas and run with them. And it turned out to be quite fortuitous because unfortunately, due to the pandemic, due to the lockdown, I wasn't able to go to the studio until the last uh, week in April, and they began in December. So it ended up me sending them the demos, you know, just me playing my guitar um, and singing, and they would send me back what they'd done. And it, it was good in the sense that um, it gave them the freedom to put everything they wanted on there without me sitting behind them in the control room, arching my eyebrow when they put the third Mellotron on the 
on the track or whatever, you know, which was good for me. It was really good for me because I get the tracks back and I'd listen to them and I'd think, wow, I didn't imagine that was going to happen. Or I'd be like, oh, I'm not sure about that. And then my partner, Juliet, who's also my manager, would come in and say, that's really beautiful. And I'd be like, is it? Oh, well, maybe it is, yeah. But it was, it was, it was a different way to make records. And but I think when you make, when you've been working in record studios as long as I have, you want the record to be a different experience. You know, when I made Two From Now with Joe, Joe Henry, I was in his house in his basement for five days, and we did it. Bit of boom, bit of bam. I never made a record like that before, and I didn't have to do anything except perform. He, he, you know, gave. He didn't even let me bring a guitar. He gave me a guitar to play. A lovely old uh, Gibson Triple O, a vintage guitar. Beautiful. And that was a great experience. I really enjoyed that. And likewise with Romeo and Dave, it was another enjoyable experience. It wasn't back to the old days where I'm in the studio and every decision has to go through me. Because when you're a solo performer, you kind of have to take that responsibility. You know, people want to know what next track is. What do you want to do with this track? When can we have a tea break? What cookies can we have? You know, can we have a chocolate cookie here? Can we have it? No. It's like, come on, you know, let's just make a collaboration and, and work together. And I felt that way really since Mermaid Avenue, you know, working with, with the Wilco's was a different way of making records for me. And I really enjoyed it so much. I've tried to, to have something like that every time I go in the studio now with, with more people, you know, more, more different ideas coming in, more collaborations, more people pushing me outside my comfort zone. So as an artist, is it odd when you write an acoustic song and then it really morphs in the studio? Um, or do you feel like at this point in your career, you're really enjoying that process of seeing it kind of take off? I'm enjoying that, you know, and sometimes you write a song and it doesn't morph. It actually becomes even more intimate and personal. Towards the end of the the sessions, I came up with uh, the track, uh, I Will Be Your Shield. And I sent it to him and Romeo was like, Bill, this is a power ballad. How are we going to record a power ballad on this record? Where are we going to put it? And I'm like, no, 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 it doesn't have to be. Let's, look, let's just, let's, let me, let's go into the studio Romeo, you play it on the piano and I'll sing and we'll see what happens. And Romeo played and he left huge gaps. And I sang it and it just worked. I think, you know, the take on the record is probably the third take of us just goofing around with it. And it has so much space in it that you can actually hear the pedals moving on the grand piano. I mean, I love that. I really love that. I thought so, that that song was beautiful. I, I, I really did. It was, it was emotional. It was sweet. It was powerful. And... Um, and like empathy, you said. Amy. It's all about the empathy. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm really conscious of that now. I'm, that's the message I'm trying to put out. It goes back to what something Woody said, you know, I never, never want to write a song that puts people down. You know, those people who have had a, a hard time, whether it's, you know, you're shielding someone physically during the pandemic, whether you're shielding someone emotionally through a difficult time, when you're, whether you're shielding someone economically who's facing hard times. You want a song that lifts people up and, and, and gives them a sense of hope. That's the kind of music I want to make. And so that's really, to, because I'm making the album during the pandemic, that's really to the fore uh, in this song. Not just songs that lift people up, but songs that are broad enough that people can bring their own experience to it. You know, for instance, with the opening track, um, I should have seen it coming. Could be about the pandemic, could be about the economic crisis, could it be about Brexit, could be about anything. Could be about whatever it was that knocked you upside your head last week, you know, Whatever it is, I'm trying to, you know, connect with as many people as possible with these songs and offer them some hope. Yeah, I thought that Good Days and Bad Days also was an interesting kind of concept where you're saying, hey, I can take the bad days, but give me enough good days yeah. that it balances out. And I think we all feel that way. That For sure. 
we know that every day is not going to be a bowl no. of peaches, but we really want some good days yeah. to balance that out. Yeah, that's what you want, isn't it? When you're really down in the in the depths and the bad days just keep coming, you just want a few good days. It's a little bit of respite, you know. So as I say, I wanted to write songs that, li that lift people up, and I hope that that song has that kind of, you know, set your, your head against tomorrow, what tomorrow's going to bring, and be able to work your way through it because that's what the song meant to me. And you wrote a song with your son too, 10 Mysterious Photos That Can't Be Explained. And your son, Jack Valero, uh, wrote that with you. And what was that experience like working with your son? It was a lot of fun, really. I mean, he's been writing songs for 10 years now, as long as I can remember. Um, and he was in a band himself. He, he's little, he had a band called the RPMs. They were like a power pop band. They went to South by a couple of years ago. Um, but college ended and his mates drifted off. And so now he's, you know, he's doing what young musicians do, playing in open mics and uh, delivering food in his car and the rest of the time, those kind of things. He's actually not doing that anymore. He's actually, he's working in a uh, COVID testing station in Brighton, sticking straws up people's noses <laughs> at the moment. So that's what he's doing. Um, but yeah, he... He hasn't really been present for the last few albums. You know, I made the, the previous album in, in Los Angeles in five days, so he wasn't around for that. And then the album before that was in 2008. I'm not even sure he started songwriting then for uh, Mr. Love and Justice. But um, this time I was playing, he was asking me what I was doing. I was playing him the tracks and he was arguing that um, the song didn't have a proper chorus. It just had an A part and a B part and the lyrics just kept coming. There was no return to any of the lyrics. And he was like, you've got to make that 10 Mysterious Photos. That's got to be the chorus. And I was like, I can't do that because I've got these lyrics here in the same, in the B part, the other B parts. And there's some really great lines here. Look, I've, I've coined a new phrase here. Look, cyberchondriac. I'm not going to throw that out. That's too good. <laughs> and he was like, well, make right a middle eight. And I was like, oh, God, here we go. You know, right a middle eight. I'm like, if you, if you think... There's a middle eight here. You show me where it is. I gave him the lyrics. I said, go and work it out. Come back and play it to me with the middle eight like you hear it. And let me hear what, you, what you're thinking. Because I don't see it. I'll be honest with you. And he came back and he played it. It was pretty good. It was pretty cool. And, and then we recorded it and he was right. He was right. And he came to the studio because where he lives in Brighton, it's just up the road from Eastbourne. So he came on the studio day and he played on the, on the song as well and a couple of other songs as well. He came on live day in the studio and made a contribution. And I'm really, really pleased about that because obviously he's played me songs before his own songs and I've made, you know, positive noises about them. I've tried not to be too critical. Um, you know, your last thing is you want your dad telling, telling you how to write songs. Um, but I hope now that, you know, next time he's stuck with a song and he's not sure how it works, he might ring me up and say, oh man, got any ideas? I'm stuck here. And I'll be like, oh, well, wait on. let me see. Let me have a think. And yeah, so I'd like to think there'll be some more collaborations. But I'm very proud of him. He's really, you know, he's found, he had, I know he's doing something he loves doing, you know. And that's that's a good place to be when, you, when you're when you in your 20s, doing what you want to do. It hasn't worked out the hardest bit yet. The hardest bit in any artist's life is how you work out, how you get paid for doing what you want to do. That's the great transition. Many of us trip at that. I tripped two times before I worked out. The third time I managed to do it. I had to go back to my mum's with my tail between my legs. But that's really the hardest thing a musician ever does. So he's got the talent. He's got the songs. He's got the gigs. He's just got to get the making a living from it bit now. But that's Well, he's lucky to have a father to. who's supportive of his artistic career. Not everybody Yeah, and also, that. you know, as an example, he's kind of seen behind the curtain. He sees how, how it works. Mm. He has no, you know, he, he, he kind of has no... Uh, 
great hopes that it's going to change the world or change his life life entirely, but he does recognize that it has a very therapeutic um, aspect to your life. If you can get your troubles out in a song, stand on stage and speak your truth, um, it, it helps you to deal with the world. When I know you're a big, obviously, music historian, but you listen to a lot of music, is there any, are there any particular artists you're listening to right now that you want to recommend to? Yeah, I've been listening to a guy named Sam Fender. He's a young guy, and he's kind of sort of political. He wrote a, a song that's uh, it's just kind of outpouring of anger. It's called I, I, which is a, he's from the northeast of England. It's the same from up there. And he's just ripping the current state of affairs to shreds. Unlike me, he's not leaning any particular political way, which is the way of young people now, I think. And I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but... Like all youngsters, he wants accountability. He wants things to be put right. And I'm a big supporter of that. So, yeah, I, I hear Sam. But it's not the same sort of thing that I was doing in the 80s and not the same sort of thing as Phil Oaks was doing in the 1960s because time's moved on. Things have changed. And, you know, uh, politics now comes in different shades and things are, you know, the idea of a uh, African-American rapper being top of the country music charts is as political as anything else I've seen in the last couple of years, I'll tell you. Well, Billy, it's been a pleasure talking with you about your life, your new album. Uh, it's, it's, it's a great album. I love it. And I particularly love the fact that I can really hear the lyrics on the way that it was, it was written, engineered, and recorded. Uh, I'm a big fan of lyrics and messaging, and so it was great that I could really hear that out front. And I hope everyone gets to listen and get a copy or download it, and uh, we hope to have you back again. Well, I hope to see you. I've got some American dates uh, planned for next year, and I, I'm, I may well get to Tennessee. I don't know if I'll get to Memphis, but I may well get to Tennessee, so hopefully we'll see you then. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Billy Bragg. To learn more about Bragg and what he's up to, and to purchase his just-released 10th studio album, The Million Things That Never Happen, visit billybragg.com. And remember, you can visit diddytv.com for more exclusive, on-demand content and download the official free Diddy TV app from your app store today. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.